On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Christy Woodson Harvey is the USA Today bestselling author of Feels Like Falling, The Southern Side of Paradise, The Secret to Southern Charm, Slightly South of Simple, Lies and Other Acts of Love, Dear Carolina, and her latest novel, Under the Southern Sky. Christy is the winner of the Lucy Bramlett Patterson Award for Excellence in Creative Writing, a finalist for the Southern Book Prize, and her work has been optioned for film, and her books have received numerous accolades. She is a Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude graduate graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hills School of Journalism and holds a master's in English from East Carolina University. She lives in North Carolina with her husband and seven-year-old son. Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Christy. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. We're so excited. I really, really loved this book. It has such warmth and heart. I told Corinne, I literally could not put it down. I devoured it in two days. You're welcome. So tell our listeners a little bit about Under the Southern Sky. So Under the Southern Sky is, I have to say this, it's a book I've been thinking about for a really long time. And I think it's my favorite book I've ever written, which is always a really good feeling as an author. Um, But it's a story about an investigative journalist named Amelia, who is working on a story about what people do with their leftover frozen embryos and inadvertently discovers that a cluster of embryos belonging to her childhood friend Parker and his late wife Greer have been deemed abandoned, which is something that we're sort of hearing about a lot in the media right now. And so she, of course, has to tell Parker this and he is put in the unenviable situation of having to decide what he's going to do with what is the last remaining part of this woman that he loved so much that he really can't move forward from. So we get to see the story from the point of view of Amelia and Parker and then Parker's late wife Greer through her journal entries and then Amelia's good southern meddling mama Elizabeth and all of these characters and Aunt Tilly who's not a protagonist but is one of my favorites they all have a secret and as those secrets are revealed they help determine what will ultimately happen to these embryos. We're going to talk about those secrets. And the mothers. <laughs> We're going to talk about all of it. I love a good secret. It's hard to write Southern fiction without secrets. Yes. Oh, okay, good. We're going to get to that. <laughs> yes. Well, first we want to start with Amelia. On this podcast, we love to talk about a protagonist who is at a crossroads. And Amelia starts right out of the gate at a real crisis point. Really, all you needed to do as the author was to get her heartbreak broken and out of her marriage, but you put the stakes so high when she comes home so excited about her modern love accomplishment, which is a big deal in and of itself. And it's about gushing about her marriage. And she comes home and finds her husband out of the shower with her hairdresser and his now lover. So you really set the stakes and I was immediately hooked. <laughs> okay, well, good. 
I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. I mean, it happens, you know, it happens and it happened to a couple of people that I knew. And I feel like there, it's one thing to come home and like find your husband with another woman. Like the stakes there are pretty cut and dry. But when you find your husband with another man and like, this is the person that you really love, you're torn because you're angry and you're heartbroken, but you also kind of want them to be the person that they're supposed to be. So I think for me, it made the stakes just a tiny bit higher because she can't just feel like she hates him. She also right. has to feel like, darn it, I want him to be happy. And if this is who he is, he could never be happy with me. So it's a long road. I mean, she's not like, oh, good for you. And she even like, she jokes with her friends. She's like, do not praise him for following his truth in front of me. Like we're all happy for him. <laughs> Don't say it in front of me, you know, because like, exactly. she is hurt and it's still, it blows up her entire life that she has very meticulously crafted. That's such an interesting way to position it. His betrayal of her was finally unraveling his betrayal to himself. But tell us more about Amelia, how you came up with her, what you love about her, what challenges you had writing her. Well, I love her. I just think she's a great character. And a lot of her story is defined by the fact that when she's 14 years old, she finds out that she has this condition where she can't have children. And so in her 14-year-old mind, she decides that she's not meant to be a mother. You know, in a grown-up mind, that might not be what you think. You would think, okay, well, there are a million ways to become a mother. This is just one of them. It's fine. But there's something in that moment for her that kind of switches. And it ends up changing her whole life because she feels very strongly that this is unfair, but there's nothing she can do to fix it. And so she's going to focus on the things that are unfair that she can fix. And it's truly like in that day that she decides she's going to be a journalist and she's going to write about things that are unfair and she's going to change the world. And she really is doing that. I mean, she's young, but she's really worked her way up to the top of this magazine that she really loves in Palm Beach. And you know, she's living in this city that is so fun and exciting, but also still small in the South. You know, she grew up in this really tiny town of Cape Carolina, which is on the coast of North Carolina, living in this house that's been in her family for generations that's beautiful and filled with memories, but also kind of falling apart at the seams. She sort of feels like a lot of her life has been spent trying to keep together this big house that no one in their family can really afford to keep up, but here they are because her mother absolutely cannot let it go. So that definitely is something that shapes her. She very much keeps people at arm's length and she doesn't really even realize it until after her marriage breaks up. And it really sets the stage with, you know, the situation that she has with Parker because she realizes, you know, this is someone from her past. He's younger than she is. He was always kind of the annoying kid next door to her. And he's very non-threatening to her. So he's someone that she can really confide in. And he's in a really bad place in his life too. And she feels sort of compelled to help him. She's like, my world is falling apart. What else do I have going on? Like, I should help him. Which is just how she is anyway. She's just going to change the world, save the world, you know, treat unfairness that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you're right. I mean, she's most of the motivations in her story are okay, what can I do? How can I help? But then also in some ways, I think she uses that as a crutch because it's a way that she can keep people at a distance. And that's the difference with her and Parker. She lets her guard down a little bit. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So on Pop Fiction Women, we talk about complicated women, which to us just really means real three-dimensional human beings. (laughs) Yeah. Who have contradictions and conflict and who we relate to nonetheless. And recently we've been talking a lot about one thing that we think makes 
makes women complicated. And you've touched on it before. That is having a secret. We've talked on a lot of episodes. We've seen it in different ways. Some are secrets that are protective. Some are just fun secrets. Some are secrets that deny, you know, an authentic part of a character's identity. And Under the Tuscan Sky has so many secrets. Uh, As you mentioned, we've got Amelia, Greer, both Amelia's and Parker's mothers, and of course, Aunt Tilly. So what interests you about women with secrets? And do you think that's an important way to add complexity to a character? And I'll just add, you mentioned earlier, must be something with Southern fiction. So I'm definitely interested in what that has to do with secrets. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we know there's this, this saying, I think that Southerners try to make everything look perfect on the outside. And so sometimes there's some things going on under the surface that you don't really know about. And that is certainly the case with all of these women and certainly with our older generation, with Olivia and Elizabeth and Tilly. They have some things that they have really carried for a long, long time. And these three women have known each other. I mean, Elizabeth and Olivia grew up as best friends and their dream was to grow up and live in houses next door to each other and have children that would get married one day. Like that was their big life goal. And they did grow up and get married and live next door to each other, which is great. But their children did not get married, unfortunately, much to their chagrin. But I think for Greer, you know, her secrets are a little more complicated because a lot of hers have to do with protecting Parker, who's, you know, her husband, because she is dying for a part of their marriage and she knows it. And I think she's trying to shield him from that as much as she can because she's just been through it with her own mother and she knows how impossible it's going to be for him when she's gone. And so she really does try to make things appear in a certain way. And this came later for me, but Amelia and Greer didn't really know each other. I mean, they knew each other vaguely on the surface as like, oh, she's married to a family friend. We might see each other briefly at a holiday, you know, whatever it may be, but they were not close in any way. And so it actually came in a later draft of the story, but I thought, what if these two women had a secret with each other that was even from Parker that he didn't know and that maybe he finds out, but I wanted it to be like a quiet secret. You know how you can whisper, you can yell, and sometimes the whisper is bigger. And so I wanted them to have a secret that maybe Parker will find out, maybe he won't, but that it bonded them in a way that almost makes the ending of this story inevitable and you know, like for the that. people who are left to carry on. It's hard to talk about the secrets without telling the secrets. Yes. I know. <laughs> it is. You have to talk about them generally. Because I want to be like, I loved that secret. That's <laughs> so on this podcast, we also have started exploring the deep, rich, but often very complicated relationships between mothers and daughters. And this is a topic that you highlight in Under the Southern Sky, as well as in your real life, having created a popular interior design blog called Design Chic with Your Mom. So how is it collaborating with your mother and how much did that relationship, again, along with your Southern roots, inspire the maternal characters in this book? Oh, that's a good question. Working with my mom is amazing. It's been so fun. We've actually had Design Chic for like 11 years, which is crazy. We kind of started it on a whim, thought we would do it for a year, and here we still are. So it's been really great to work together kind of day in and day out. And it does... You know, has really bonded us in a different way, I think, being business partners and having to make these entirely different kinds of decisions than we did just as mother and daughter. And every now and then we're like, oh, 
we wish that we could just sit and have a normal conversation sometimes, you know, because, um, because we do work together so much. So there is, you know, always kind of that element to our relationship, but it's great. I mean, I couldn't do it with anyone but her. And I definitely have a very different relationship with my mom than anyone in this story. I mean, we're very close. We're very good friends. We're not exactly the same. I mean, we definitely have different opinions about things. She's a third child. So she's like very laid back, and, you know, and I'm a first only. So I have like big opinions about things and it's great but we're just we're very close and we tend to kind of see eye to eye about the big things and so definitely at least you know I think we see Elizabeth and Amelia the most and Elizabeth and Olivia both are extremely traditional women like you grow up you go to church marry the boy that your mom wanted you to you're the president of the garden club they're just these things that you do right and so for her like to have this daughter that's like doing this different thing with her life and is never going to have children is never going to make her grandmother. And at first, like, that's kind of hard for her. But I think Elizabeth is an interesting example of a woman who is sort of moving into realizing, oh, it's okay if she wants to have a different life. And I think that's a neat thing about her is that her daughter's really teaching her. And there's some really poignant moments between them where she's like, okay, like, you're going to kill your poor mother, but it's fine. you know. And, and I do really grow. But I also thought it was fun to write, you know, a girl mom and a boy mom because Olivia only has sons. And so she has a very different relationship with them. Like she's a little bit more hands-off. She doesn't really tell them what to do so much. And I think that's something that I mean, I'm a boy mom and I'm not like that. Let me tell you, my son gets to hear everything that I think at all times. But I think there is a tendency for mothers of grown sons, yes, especially in the South, say, yeah. to be a little more hands-off, to kind of let them make their own decisions, where I think mothers of girls feel more able to like insert themselves into their lives. So that was a fun contrast, too, to get to be able to see what their relationships were like with a daughter versus a son. There's so much nuance and complexity there that I hadn't even considered, which rings very true, though, for my experiences in life. But I also love that you working with your mom, it has to force some growth. She has to respect you as you're working as business people, right? It's not mom telling you what to do or daughter petulantly not doing what she says to do. And it's a completely different dynamic that working together. And it was interesting too, because I mean, when we started this blog, she didn't know how to do any of this. I mean, it was 2009. So I was the teacher. Like it was kind of like we switched roles. I mean, I was teaching her like, how to do all these things that we had to do. And and I also kind of made me think about her in a different way too, because she's a fierce negotiator. And that shocked me. Like oh, I was like, wow. really? Like I would be like, well, you know, like when we were doing like business proposals and stuff and people would come back and they'd be like, well, we only want to pay blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, well, that's fine. And she'd be like, absolutely not. No, like this is what we charge. They can do it or not. And usually she gets it, you know? So that was kind of interesting to see this different side of her. I mean, I always knew like, you know, she had this business degree and whatever, but she stayed home with me. So so, right. I mean, you don't she was see mom. That. I don't see that right. part of her. So that's been really interesting too. I mean, just to see her in a different way. And then I think she definitely has been very intertwined in my business, like both in design she and on the author side of things, just because so much of it is related. I mean, like our Instagram is both of those things and like design chic, it's about interiors, but also it does help a lot with my books. And so she's very involved in the promotion and marketing ends of 
that as well. I mean, it's been a really great partnership. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just the lens that you see things through. It's just Yeah, like yeah. they they feed each other in a really interesting way. And honestly, at the time when I started all of this, everyone said to me, "Oh, you can't do that. You have to have these two completely separate presences." And I do in some places. Right. But honestly, it was really just more laziness. I was like, "I cannot possibly maintain two Instagram accounts well or whatever." And now you see authors really going to like they talk about books, but they also talk about X, you know, I've really seen people move into that. And so I'm like, Oh, well, yeah. I just knew I was doing that all along. Yeah. <laughs> and the authors that only talk about their books, I'm like, I got it. Show me something else because otherwise I can just read your book again. By the way, on yours, show me something beautiful. I mean, I love yours. It's like eye candy. I love decor and design. I don't have the talent, but yes, I see we have similar tastes. Yes. But anyway, yeah. Yes. So I love to look at your Instagram and, well, thank and I you. do think they coordinate nicely. Yeah. And you know, people don't like just one thing. I mean, it's not. Yeah, exactly. It's our whole That's, podcast premise. Right. right. Exactly. You <laughs> don't be, be more one than thing. one thing. Yes. So let's stick with some of these strong female characters. I don't want to forget about Greer. We've touched on her a little, but we get such like a powerful image of her through the admiring eyes of Amelia, sort of like she's an idol to her. And then we get the really loving image of her through Parker. But it's through, as you mentioned, her own journal entries where I think we really get to see her vulnerability and her strength. And it's also where you delve into grief. And having lost my own father to ALS, I know all too well what it's like to lose someone. And for Greer, it's cancer, but we know that it runs in her family and she's already experienced it with her own mother. And it just reminded me that, you know, grief is so personal, but it's also so universal and something everyone can relate to. So I was just curious, you know, why you wanted to explore that in your book. I don't know why exactly, except that I knew I wanted to write about these embryos in some way. And I knew I wanted the stakes to be really high. And I thought, you know, what makes the stakes high? And there are several different things I thought of, but nothing could be higher stakes than having these embryos left over from someone that you love that's gone. In my mind, nothing could, now I'm sure there's something someone could come up with. But for me, that was pretty much as high stakes as you could get. We see single mothers. We see them all the time. We know what a single mother looks like. We know them personally. We know the trials that they face. And we know that, but we also know that like they do it and they're rock stars at it, you know, that they do this. But I don't feel like we see as many examples of single fathers and they certainly exist, of course, but I don't think we see them quite as much and certainly not that just decided I'm going to go out and have a family on my own, quite like we do with women who will say, okay, I'm ready. I'm going to have a baby. And so I thought that would make it really interesting because, you know, a single mother, like I said, I could picture that really easily. But the single fatherhood, I couldn't really quite wrap my mind around it. And I knew, you know, for a character like Parker, this would be really, really high stakes. If he was still really mourning, if he was just super convinced that he was never going to move forward from Greer, that that was the end point of his life. And finding out that he had these embryos left was going to really open something deep and wide in him. I'm writing her through her journal entries, you know, it's hard to write about a person who's no longer here because they're so sainted. Even in our real lives, we can't talk about their flaws because they're not here. And, and, and Parker even says that to Amelia at some point. He says, you know, I can't talk about 
about her in a negative way because she's not here to defend herself. And he does have this just saintly goddess remembrance of her that I think is part of the reason that he really can't move forward because who could possibly compete with this perfect image of this perfect woman that he has? And for Amelia, who didn't know her that well, she was everything. I mean, she was beautiful and powerful and strong and generous and she gave back and she was always doing all these things and and she was like the person that you wanted to be. She was the example of how you change the world and look good doing it, you know? And so I did think it was important. I was very nervous about writing these journal entries because I thought, is this going to be hokey? Are we going to feel weird about it? But the first journal entry that I wrote for her was the one where she goes to the doctor's office and she is saying goodbye to her embryos. And after I wrote that, I thought, okay, I think we need to see her some in this story. Yeah, that's a good one. I felt like that one we had to have. Like I felt like the whole story hinged on that journal entry. And also then we get to see her. Like we get to see her as a real person who had real thoughts and real flaws and real feelings and who did things that like weren't so great and who had bad days like we do. Otherwise, we only got to see her through kind of this perfect lens. And Parker does, there are some barriers that are broken down where he does tell Amelia some things about Greer that maybe weren't as perfect as they seemed. But by and large, she is very sainted in this story. And that was the best way I could think of to make her not such a saint. No, it makes sense. It gives her complexity through her own voice and her th- through her own perspective. I was really struck by the weaving together, the birth, the new life, the thinking of going on, and then weaving that with the grief of her being gone. And so I just thought that was a something I hadn't really seen before. But it made complete sense to go together as feelings. You know, I do think sometimes you see that, like it happens in life where someone's grandmother dies and then their child is born or, you know, those things will happen like that, that are really incredible. Okay. So Under the Southern Sky explores themes of coming home and coming back to your roots. Amelia literally comes home to her hometown, but also is rediscovering the person that she has known her whole life and her true self. So the story is a lot about family, the one you're born into, the one you choose, and the one you create. I know your North Carolina hometown serves as inspiration for the picturesque setting of your novel. Tell us what interests you about this theme of coming back to your roots and a small town and being like one big family. Oh, I love that. What a good question. So yes, you're right. So I actually grew up in a little town in like central North Carolina called Salisbury. And it was just one of those great places where everybody knew everybody and everybody sort of always had your back. And I feel like my friends that I grew up with will always be my friends, always forever and ever. And it was just one of those places where you just feel good. And like, I smile when I talk about it. I just love it. And I love to go home. And I like this idea of spreading your wings and going out into the world and being able to follow your dreams, but also to come back to this place that you really love. And I live on the North Carolina coast now in a little town called Beaufort, which is super cute and sweet. And I love it so much here and it's beautiful. And so I do get a lot of inspiration. And actually when I was writing under the Southern sky, so we live in downtown Beaufort in a historic house and Hurricane Florence had just swept through and our house was seriously damaged. We were out of it for like 18 months. And so one of the rental houses that we were living in was over on Atlantic Beach, which is just over the bridge. And it was actually out on the end of this peninsula. And it was not alone. It was like in a neighborhood, but it was out on the end of a peninsula. And it had these beautiful live oaks that kind of grew sideways. And whereas we're sort of more open water over there, it's like a little marshier and just really beautiful. And so when I started writing this story, I was really 
rewriting that setting where I was, which was so fun. And there's like little different things in the book that really happened, like the nighttime scene where Amelia and Parker are kayaking and they're like going through the marsh. I woke my son up one night and said, like, hey, do you want to go kayaking in the marsh? You know, so that kind of thing was really fun. And it was kind of a silver lining to being out of our house is that I was like very enmeshed in this place that I still live, but it was like very different, even though it was so close by. So it was kind of fun to be able to explore that. And I just had envisioned like, what would it be like if this peninsula just had these two houses on the end and it had been in this family forever. So it was kind of the best of all things that I love. It was like the historic house, but this beautiful setting. But I love the idea of just, you know, of coming home and back to people. I think when people are in crisis points in their lives, I mean, oh my gosh, COVID, like that was part of the thing too, that really, you know, inspired this is so many people were going back home. And that's what was happening. Like people were like, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go home. It's not so much. I think that Parker and Amelia mean to go home. It just kind of happens. It's like prices strikes and that's where they find themselves. So I already live in my hometown. We both grew up on opposite forks on Long Island, but it's very similar. I mean, I'm in the Hampton. She's on the North Fork by water. So we don't relate to the Southern aspect, but it's very similar. My kid goes to the school I went to. So it's actually funny that you say that because we were in the Hamptons, I guess it was two summers ago, and it is so similar to where I oh, live. Like wow. it's very yeah. really? shockingly yeah. similar to oh, where I live. Wow. Yeah, all of it. Like to the point where being in like the downtown areas is a lot like Beaufort where I live right here. But then when you'll kind of get out to the parts where you're not sort of in the downtown, it's so much like parts like a little bit east of us and so beautiful and like you have more land and we said so I mean, we we're like oh my gosh this is so cool like it's really so similar to visit your it's hometown really yes. it's really <laughs> I think I would yeah. like it yeah So this book, I think at its core is a love story, but somehow within that, you don't shy away from some really serious issues like the right to die, infertility, frozen embryos, as we've discussed, and the legal rights around them, cancer, grief and loss. So how did you manage to strike such a good balance between addressing these weighty issues, but also writing, as I said, a super compelling page turner love story? Oh, it's, well, just, thank you. it's an amazing balance that you were able to strike. That's a huge compliment. I really appreciate that. I don't know, honestly, but there were a lot of things going on in my head at that time about all of those things that you just mentioned. And sometimes I'll have a lot of different topics that I think, oh, I really would like to touch on that in a story. I think that would be interesting. And they all end up in the same place. I did not intend for this embryo story to also have this right to die theme to it. And actually, when I started working on it, it was going to go very differently. I envisioned this story going very differently for Greer and for Parker. But I was really fascinated by the way that I think his love story with her shaped the end of her life. And to me, that was kind of an interesting thing that we got to see. Not as much, but we got to see like glimpses of. I think it's just how I write. Like, I think that's the only way to say, I mean, because I can say, oh my gosh, this book is about this. And people will be like, oh my God, like that sounds really heavy. But then somehow like they're not, you know, like (laughs) I've written about like people with Alzheimer's and I've written about mothers giving up their babies. And I've written about all these really heavy things, but I think ultimately they all turn into these feel good stories or I hope that they do. And I'm a sucker for a happy ending. Like I like a happy ending. We were just saying that too. Yeah. And I know, like I completely understand that there are going to be people who pick this book up and they're going to be like, well, I knew what was going to happen the whole time. Well, like, you're welcome for that. Yes. (laughs) 
Exactly. You know how hard it is to meet people's expectations? Right. Well, I mean, because, you know, if you don't, can you imagine people right. would be burnt at the stake? Yes. <laughs> yes. No, but there is something to me about maybe you do go into the story and you kind of know what happens, but you don't know how you're going to get there necessarily. And so to me, that's the fun of being a writer because a lot of times I know what A is and I know what Z is, but I don't know what's going to happen in the middle. And this is a real case of not knowing that because in small ways and and a really, really big way, the way this plot was going to unfold when I pitched this story, I started writing it and I was like, nope, that's not going to do it. Can't write (laughs) that. And it was so funny how in my head and to everyone else, and even then when I called my editor and I said, I'm actually not going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And she was like, no, 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 no. I loved the way you had it at first. And I was like, that's fine. You read it. And then you tell me, like, I'll save this. And then I'm going to rewrite it. And then you let me know what you think. And she was like, oh yeah, you're totally right. Like that wasn't going to work. But sometimes you don't know that until you're like muddling through the story. Although I can't say muddling on the story because the story was a joy to write. Even when I got to that point where I was like, oh, this isn't going to work in the plot. It was fine. I mean, it wasn't like I had written a hundred extra pages and had to go back. It was like I was writing it and kind of knew instinctively as I was going along that it wasn't going to work. So it was okay. And you know, it's funny. Was it Alicia Rye, I think, Corinne, who's a a writes romance, who said the same thing to us about a happy ending. And she's like, well, that's what I love about that genre, she said. But she's like, you know, it's not so easy to write a happy ending. And she talked about happiness being subversive. And I was like, this is true. It sounds easy, particularly one that's satisfying. In this story, there are a lot of loose ends to tie up. And it's not a universally happy ending. I mean, I think you feel satisfied at the end, but it's not like you put the book down and like everyone ended up on a unicorn. I hope everybody walks away being like, oh good, I was satisfied by that. When I start, I want to know how it's going to end, but I want you to lead me astray in the mm-hmm. middle. And that's oh, totally. what you've done, right? No, totally. like that's what I like too. Like I like to be like, oh my God, if they do this, I am just, I'm going to throw this book against the wall. <laughs> Don't do it. But we we do it in life too. We make those decisions where people from the outside are like, oh my God, don't do it. Well, we want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your road to publication. You are a journalist by training and we read that you can't count the number of times that you said you would never Mm -hmm. write a novel. And yet, not only have you written a novel... This is lucky number seven. How did you change your mind? What happened and how did you end up here? So I always loved to write. I actually got my first newspaper column when I was in high school. And that really, I think, set me on my path because it was when I made the decision, like, yes, I'm going to go to journalism school. And I'd had you know, a lot of different things that I was interested in and a lot of other things that I was considering doing. But that to me was the moment when I was like, yes, this is the thing. But I graduated, I got my master's, and then I was living in this little North Carolina town. And it was 2008. And the economy was horrible. And my plan had been to go teach at a college or a community college and like maybe work on my PhD while I was doing that. And there just weren't any jobs. Everyone was getting laid off. Everyone was cutting programs, cutting funding. The government money was going away. The private money was going. I mean, it was kind of a disastrous time to get a job. And so I just thought, okay, like I went to the local newspaper and they were like, the only thing we have is like, you could write obituaries. Like we feel like you're a little overqualified for that, you know? And I was like, oh, that sounds so depressing. And 
don't want to do that. And so I was just interviewing for stuff and I got a job offer in finance. It was like something I had never wanted to do, but they were basically like, it actually is kind of perfect for your background because I was more doing the like sales part of things. So I kind of had like a team that was backing me up and making a lot of the financial decisions. I was really just going out and calling on clients and I loved it. Like it was super fun. I got to travel all over the place and I learned so much. Like now I'm just this devoted, I like everyone needs to know about money. Like they really do. It changed my life in so many ways because I feel like it really set me on this path of like, you need to save and you need to have insurance and like you need to do all these things, you know, to protect yourself. But I was, you know, I would just be driving around, going to go see clients or whatever. And I kept having all these ideas and I knew they were story ideas, but there's this one that just really wouldn't let me go. And I finally thought, you know what? I'm going to write it. I'm just going to do it. I'm going to see if I can do it. Nothing will come of it, but I'm just going to see. And so I wrote a book and it was a whole book and it was finished beginning to end. And I thought, okay, like this is something that I did. It's not that great, but I did it. And I kept writing and I kept writing. And finally on my third manuscript, I thought, okay, I need to do something with this. Like it's time to sort of either put yourself out there and get rejected and move on with your life and bear your tail and you're fine or move forward and really commit to this. So I signed with a literary agent for my third manuscript, which was awesome. So he was trying to sell that. And in the meantime, I had written Dear Carolina and I submitted it to a writing contest and it won. And one of the judges was an editor from Berkeley and she, I'm making this sound really short. It was like a very long process, but she ended up buying the book. She read the submission in the contest. I did a rewrite for her. There was like a lot of things that happened and she ended up buying the book out of the contest. So it was a great beginning and I kept telling myself, well, you can't do this. You don't know anyone in publishing. You don't know any authors. You don't have any foot in the door. You don't have any connections. You're never going to get published. At the end of the day, I really didn't have to have any of that. I was able to write a book at night and on weekends and end up having this as a career, which has been so amazing. And there's also like a lot of luck along the way, you know, people will say, like my publisher will probably tell you they've probably never met anyone that works as hard as I do. (laughs) Like there are no stones left unturned. None. I am very type A. So we very all in, very all in. You're talking to a lawyer who said since basically like she was seven years old that she would never go to law school and never become a lawyer. And hello, I'm still a practicing lawyer. And Corinne is also a lawyer. And we went to college together. And she likes to tell the story that I don't remember, but I believe her, that she drove me to the LSATs. And that on the way, I was saying, I'm never actually going to like practice law or like work in a law firm. And she's all, I'm going to be a partner in a law firm. Meanwhile, I'm still in a law firm. So you just don't know. know. You You should never. I know. And my husband always said, he's 10 years older than I am. And he's always like, you don't know. At that stage, he was like, don't say you're not going to do something. You have no idea what you're going to do. You have absolutely no idea. And so now I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, I would never say I'm not going to do something because like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Right. Yeah. So this, this sort of segues into my next, which we always call our sort of random question. But clearly we hope you believe that no matter what your plan, sometimes life just takes you in a different direction. Maybe it's the luck or as you said, could be the universe at play. And on this podcast, when we try to leave our controlling analytical lawyer brains behind, we get into astrology. It's sort of a side interest of ours. And from our research, which let me call it what it is, stalking your Instagram, I believe you are a cancer and you love to celebrate your birthday for a month. And I'm a Leo (laughs) and I celebrate it for a month. So I don't know, maybe it's just summer birthday people. Wait, when's your exact birthday? July 16th. 
I was going to say, maybe it's just July, because I'm July 28th, but I happen to be a Leo. Right. Anyway, so do you relate to your sign? Oh, oh my gosh. I'm yeah. completely my sign. Oh, yeah. No, I'm like big on my horoscope. And in fact, there's this one horoscope app that a friend told me about, and I actually had to like delete it because it was so horrifyingly accurate that I was Tell like, us. I can't go into my day like this. I don't even remember what it was. But now I do I do daily horoscope, and it's really good. Both our mothers are cancer, by the way. So really? We, yes. Yeah, both no, of our moms are. No, but I'm definitely are. a cancer. Like, I am a homebody, which is hilarious because not in the pandemic, obviously, but like I would go on these like six-week book tours. Right, you're very out the there place. in the world. Yes. Well, yeah. And then like, you know, our house was not, we were out of our house. We moved like 11 times in 18 months, like things that cancers don't really do that well with, but yeah, oh, I'm definitely a cancer. I definitely am. But it's funny. Cause like, I think I'm secretly emotional. Oh yeah. It would be very rare that you would see me cry or something, but like inside I am just ripped apart. Well, that um, is cancer. They do. Oh yeah. I guess we're in our shell. That's true. Yes, exactly. Okay. So y'all know who I am. So that's it. We don't have to say anymore. Exactly. I actually have a lot of cancer in my whole chart. I'm an Aries, but I have a lot of water and specifically cancer in my chart. I mean, this isn't astrology, but lots of stuff like happens to me that... I think I just like draw things like I was on this plane ride and I was sitting beside this woman that was like a psychic medium and she told me for four hours like all about all these people that were talking to me and I was like at a book signing and this man came in and was like I'm a shaman and your third eye chakra like stuff like this just happens to me kind of frequently and my husband's always like what is wrong with you but I love it but a psychic told my mom that I was pregnant had no idea I was pregnant none she called me and she was like um and I was like I'm not pregnant and then like three weeks later I kind of remembered her saying that and I was like oh "Hmm." my goodness totally was pregnant Mm -hmm. oh wow oh wow yeah I do think when you're open to stuff like that it finds its way to you for sure part of what we love about astrology is the idea that there's another plan for us that we have no control over and that life lesson as you've already talked about a little bit hit really hard in the writing and the editing of this book as you beautifully talk about in your acknowledgments which is probably our favorite part of any book especially the book we love because we're like, we want to see who is a part of it, what they care about. Do you want to talk a little bit about all of the obstacles you ran into. And also what I want to hear is I know that you probably had a good face on and you certainly do now because it's a beautiful, amazing book that's out in the world or soon to be out in the world. But were you freaking out inside and breaking down (laughs) or did you trust it? So I'll tell you what was interesting about that time. This is going to sound weird because it made it like a million times harder, but it also kind of like saved me in some ways. My mother-in-law had been sick for a really long time and we had actually moved her down here like two years earlier. So it was great. We saw her every day, but two days before we had to evacuate for the hurricane, we called in hospice for her. So we were trying to get her evacuated. And then we knew it was going to be a long time. I mean, this was a, I mean, the storm of the century is what they called it. So we knew this was going to be a big deal storm. And so I was so focused on like, how do we get her out of here? What if she dies when we're in this random place? Like there was so much of that going on. And so I was so grateful that like we were able to get back. She passed away here and there was so much happening, Justin, like obviously like we came home and we were like, okay, well our house is ruined. So that's that. But what now? There just, there wasn't time. Like I didn't have time time to be like, oh my gosh, like everything I own and home is really important to me as a cancer. Yeah, as a cancer, absolutely. And, you know, as someone that blogs about it. And so it was in perspective kind of, cause it was like, okay, well it's just a house. It's fine. And there was so much to do to plan for her. It really was sort of in perspective. Um, although don't say that to someone like, oh, it's just stuff. 
Like, what a horrible thing to say. Like, that's what I say to you when you're like, it's so awful that you lost everything you've ever owned. And you say, thank you. It's just stuff. You can say that, but don't say that. I'm like, I would be just like aghast at people that would be like, well, it's just stuff. I'll be like, okay, well, good. Well, tomorrow I'm going to send you the 75 letters from the insurance adjuster that I got today. And I'm going to let you handle that. It's all fine. And it is just stuff at the end of the day. And it does put your life in perspective. And we really did realize through that. We were like, look, we handled this like champs. Like we were really good. We moved around. It probably was kind of hard, but we just powered through. Like we worked, we didn't miss deadlines. Our kid was fine. It's all fine. But yeah, it definitely was like a weird time because then we moved back in our house. I was starting to edit this book and COVID happened. So it was definitely like, wow, the world is really weird. But I think in so many ways, like writing is my escape. Like that's where I go when I'm like, okay. And you know, these characters are all extremely untethered in their lives at this particular moment. I mean, everything that they've kind of held dear in a much larger way than what was happening in my life is happening to them. The life that they thought that they had created for themselves is cracking apart in every possible way. And so I think writing this story about how we can't hold on to these things so tightly felt right for me in that moment. And you write at the end of it, in Under the Southern Sky, as in life, miracles are born from adversity. Relationships are created in the void of lost love and dashed hopes. New life springs from ashes. I love that. I do too. I totally don't even remember writing that. But yeah, but it's true, right? And and really and truly, I mean, I, I was, again, in small ways, ways that are certainly not in the ways that Parker and Greer and Amelia are facing it. But there were some tragedies that year, those and some other ones. So it was definitely some things to get through while I was writing this book, but it all shaped it. And it's funny too, how I think, you know, in 20 years, I'll be able to pick this book up. I know for sure that I will remember where I was and what was going on in my life when I was writing that story. Speaking of things that spring from adversity in the pandemic, we have to talk about your podcast, your friends in fiction. It's a podcast, a Facebook series, Mm -hmm. what all of the above... Where you share and celebrate stories and support independent bookstores. And hello, your colleagues that are doing it. This is a powerhouse. It's fellow authors, Mary Kay Andrews, Mary Alice Monroe, Patty Callahan Henry, and Kristen Harmel and you. So tell us about that. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, talk about random ideas. I mean, so we all had books coming out right as the pandemic was hitting and we all had these giant book tours that we were supposed to be going on. And like, that's how I sell books. I go on book tours, schlep from city to city for way too long and wear myself until the point of no return. And then I come home, you know, I mean, like, that's what I do is I, that's how I sell books and all of them do too. Like, that's what we do. So we were freaking out. What are we going to do? We can't go on book tour and this is going to be awful. And of course there are like so many bigger things going on in the world that you feel bad, even like worrying about your little book. But at the same time, like it's your career. And am I going to have a career if this book tanks and all those things? So we get on zoom one night and we're just complaining. What are we going to do? And then, you know, we have a glass of wine and we start laughing and things don't seem so bad. And we were like, this is fun. Let's do it again next week. And then I think it was Kristen. It might've been Mary Kay. I can't remember. said, you know what? We should do this online and like let readers come and like they can ask questions and stuff. And we were like, Oh yeah, that'd be funny. And so we did it the first night. We all announced it on our social media. And then we went live on Mary Kay's Facebook page and did not expect anyone to come to the point that Mary Kay was in her pajamas. We just were like, people will not come. And I think we had like a thousand live viewers or something that first night. But then we were like, okay, well, that was great. But then people kept emailing in and saying like, 
please keep doing this. It's so fun. We need this. We're so depressed. We can't go anywhere. And we were like, same. We are too. And we had had so much fun and just getting to like interact with readers online felt so good. And so we had a plan where we're going to do this for seven weeks because then Kristen's book will be out. And at the end of seven weeks, I think we had 20,000 followers in our Facebook group. And we were like, okay, well, this is a thing. And like, we just felt like these people were our people. You know, we were like, this is our tribe now. Like, we got to keep this going. And our publishers got involved, or especially Gallery Books, who's um, my publisher and Kristen and Mary Alice's publisher. They got on board with us in like a really big way because we were like, we can't just keep doing this ourselves. We've got to kind of like step it up a little bit. And so, yeah, we're still here. And it's just crazy. We're getting ready to have our one-year anniversary on Wednesday the 14th. And Jodi Picot is going to be our guest. And it's just been so beyond anything that we could have imagined. And at first, we were just running the Wednesday night show shows on the podcast just because like our tech guy was like, Hey, I can just put this up as a podcast at the same time. And we were like, great. But then the show kept growing and there's so many guests we're trying to get in. We were like, what if we started doing extra podcasts too? So we do like between two and four a month and one to three of us will interview a guest. And we've just had some incredible guests on. Kristen Hanna was our first guest and she's so great. So it was like, it's hard to top her. But I mean, truly all of our guests have been just phenomenal and we've had tons of debut authors and it's been great. And I think more than anything, we were all really also beyond the selfishness of being worried about our own book tours. We were worried about all these bookstores that we love, that we spend our time going around the country seeing. And we thought, well, if we can make these events where this is our bookstore and like they'll offer a discount or we'll offer like a little goodie that goes in with it. I think it's helped. I mean, I think every little thing that you can do, you know, just to remind people that like, hey, those brick and mortar stores, like they need us big time right now. I think it changes the way that you think about things. It's changed my shopping habits. Like I was always a big independent bookstore supporter, but it's made me think more about even if I'm like ordering printer paper, I'm like, but if I go to my staples, they're people that work in that store. You know, I mean, it really yeah. has made me think about things a lot more than I used to. Yeah. Well, when you're locked in, you have to think about when you come out, what's going to be here? What's going to, exactly you know, what right. are you actually going to see when you emerge? Well, you already mentioned that you have a book coming out in October already. Can you give us a little teaser? Oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. So October 26th, Christmas and Peachtree Bluff is coming out. It's a fourth book in my Peachtree Bluff series that I have said for years I was not going to write. So here we are. Again, don't say these things because here we are. (laughs) But maybe you should say never all the time because it comes to fruition in the best way. Yeah. Maybe so. That's a good point. But yeah, I had sort of this idea that I was like playing around with that I kept thinking this would be a good story, but I kept thinking, oh, this needs to be a Peachtree Bluff book. But I I didn't even really want to pitch it to my publisher because we just kind of moved on from Peachtree Bluff and my 2022 book is already finished and I thought we're just getting too far out from Peachtree Bluff to really be able to go back to it. But during the pandemic, I just was flooded with emails from people saying they had like reread it or they just read it for the first time. And I think it was such a like cozy place to be during a really crazy time that I think they wanted to go back to Peachtree Bluff. And so finally I thought, well, I have this idea. Why don't I just ask? So, you know, I called my editor. But actually what I did first is I put a post on Facebook and said, who wants to go back to Peachtree Bluff? And I got like 700 responses in like Uh, two hours. There we go. So I sent it to my publisher and was like, so here's my idea for the story. Some people think it's a good idea. <laughs> I'm not alone. But the funny thing was I had just been doing this like Simon and Schuster live thing and I was interviewing another author, but people were chiming in and asking questions and all these people were asking in the comments, Christy, are you going to write more Peachtree Bluff? So it was really uh, funny because it was like, they already kind of knew, like they were, they were like, yeah, this is probably a good idea. And so I pitched the idea and I said, I think this would be great. It could come out in Christmas of 2022. And they were like, no, we wanted to come 
come out this year. And I was like, I can't write a Christmas book in, you know, now that's going to come out in October. That's just not going to work. But then it was almost the holiday season and we weren't doing all of our normal crazy holiday stuff because right. we were sitting at home. So it was, I just sort of started writing the Christmas that I wished we were having. And this book just... I mean, it was great. It was like it had just been sitting there for three years and was like just ready to be written. And every character, so Ansley, Emerson, Sloan, Caroline, and then Caroline's daughter, Vivi, they all have a POV in this story, oh, wow. which oh. I don't know. I hope it's not confusing, but I feel like most people that read the fourth book in the series are really intimately aware of who right. people yeah. are too. Yes. Right. Um, and I think if you just pick it up as a Christmas book, like you don't have to have read any of the other books before, but it does start with a hurricane, which is not really shocking. And Ansley... Jack and Vivi actually get stuck in Peachtree Bluff during a hurricane because they're supposed to evacuate. Vivi is kind of having a tantrum and r- runs off and they get stuck in Peachtree Bluff and have to ride out the hurricane of the century. So this might sound familiar. Right. <laughs> oh, so you had a little inspiration yeah, I had a little for inspiration. that. Okay. Um, I had a lot of pent-up hurricane scenarios going on. But then, of course, everyone comes back home to Peachtree Bluff for Christmas and rebuilds. And it's a happy, magical holiday oh. story. Love it. <laughs> and how quickly did you write that? Just oh like God, kill us when like you tell so us this. Fast. Just... I mean, it was like a couple weeks. It was really fast. Wow. <laughs> it was really wow. Fast. Okay. Okay. I pitched them the idea in like December 23rd. And they were like, okay, but we can't submit it to the board. And then like by the time we had gotten back from Christmas break, I sent them the first draft and said, okay, here it is. Now you can decide if you want it. And they were like, what? Like, I wasn't doing anything. I was sitting here. It was a pandemic. Like, what was I going to be doing? So I just wrote a lot. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, okay. a lot of people are going to be very happy about that. But then you edit and edit and edit and edit. And I mean, it was not like I wrote it in a couple of weeks and that was that. Right. I mean, right. There's a lot right. that goes into it. And truly, it just flowed. Like, it was just so easy because I knew these women so well. Yeah. yeah. Like you said, it would probably have been percolating in your mind for so long before that anyway. Yeah. Well, this was lovely. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Oh my gosh, thank you for taking time to talk to me. I'm so excited. Thanks for helping me launch Under the Southern Sky. I love how I'm showing it to y'all. I like know. the podcast people can see me. It's all right. So you should tell the podcast people though where they can find you, all your social media or wherever. So my website is christywoodsonharvey.com. That's kind of home base. Like all my tour dates and stuff are there. So come see me on tour. I'll doing a lot of, doing a lot of virtual events too. I am at Christy W. Harvey on Instagram and Twitter, and I'm Christy Woodson Harvey on Facebook. And if you like design stuff, you can go follow me on Pinterest. I'm my design chic. And what about the Facebook that's on... Oh, Friends and Fiction. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So the website is friendsandfiction.com, or you can join the Friends... I guess because I'm so Southern, I can't say friend. Like when I say Friends and Fiction, it doesn't... So it's Friends (laughs) and Fiction, and that's our Facebook group. (laughs) But yeah, we'd love for y'all to join us. Love it. All right. Well, thank you so much. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology. And we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording 
from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.